Welcome to episode 27 of the Tottenham Hotspur Family Podcast. My name's Javed, and joining me this week in a special edition, um, I'm in London, and I've got Nikki Merritt in Joburg once again. Hi, everyone. And we've got two very special guests um, from the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust, Martin Cloak and Katrina Law, who are in London. Hi there, how you doing? Hello, good evening. Hi, hi guys. Thank you, thank you for taking the... the, the they've taken, taken the time this evening to, to join us um, part of the reason you're here is because Martin kindly um, wrote a fascinating article which which um, we'll talk briefly about a little bit later um, but it before I begin um, could we just have a little a brief intro just a bit about yourselves um, what you do for a living perhaps and how long you supported Spurs first match you went to um, favourite player of all time, favourite current player perhaps, if I start with ladies first, Kat? Sure, of course. So um, I work in marketing communications for a business-to-business consultancy in the West End. Um, I have supported Tottenham since May 1981, so that's 34 years. Clearly I'm not out. Uh, my first match was against Nottingham Forest um, at White Hart Lane in the mid-80s, which we lost. I always find it good to lose your first live game. It manages expectations moving forward. Um, best moment? Oh, gosh. Uh, I've got quite a few, actually. Um, more recent, really. Lennon to Crouch in the San Siro. That was awesome. Danny Rose against Arsenal at White Hart Lane in 2010. Awesome again. Woodgate against Chelsea at Wembley in 2008. Crouch away at Man City, obviously, when we qualified for the Champions League. Um, Favourite player of all time. There's an in-joke here. I have to say Clint Dempsey, but it's probably Ricky Villa. And favourite current player, let's go with Harry Kane, just to be uh, unique and uh, you know, unusual there. I was just, <laughs> but before I come to, to Martin, I was just going to say May 1981, that would have been, well, the FA Cup final and, and Ricky Villa's famous goal. Absolutely. Golf. Hence him being my all-time favourite player after Clint Dempsey. Yes. <laughs> I was a mere schoolgirl up in Yorkshire, and that cemented my love for the mighty Tottenham Hotspur. And, and sorry, Kat, why Clint Dempsey? <laughs> it's an ongoing joke, really. I just really liked him. I never felt that we used him in his correct position. I never felt that we really respected him for, the, for what he could do. He was a big game player, scored some crucial goals for us. And I think I was the only person who went around Europe that season with a Dempsey 2 shirt. Like, literally, <laughs> I'd be in Milan or in Rome or wherever, and people would come up to me and say, What is wrong? You don't like Bale, basically. <laughs> no one could understand why I had Dempsey on my shirt. So I was flying that one-woman flag for Clint. Uh, I was oh. devastated when he left. I held a candlelit vigil on my own. <laughs> <laughs> I also really liked him, I must say. I, I, I was very sad when he left Spurs. Me too. Completely yeah. underrated by us. And how about, how about you, Martin? Um, <clears throat> Clint Dempsey, sort of fairly indifferent, really. But um, I, uh, I think my earliest memories of Spurs are... 71, 72. Uh, I remember listening to the UEFA Cup final on the uh, on the radio. Uh, shows my age, probably the radio. Um, 
So uh, I'm, a, I'm a journalist. I've uh, been a journalist for over 30 years. I currently work for a, uh, a customer publishing agency um, dealing with a lot of financial journalism. Um, uh, but back to the interesting stuff on the Spurs front. Um, interesting you're talking about May 81 because that was my... That's still my favourite Spurs moment. Uh, I was at both cup finals that year as a, as a 15-year-old kid. Uh, it's fantastic on a Thursday night. 90,000 Spurs fans in Wembley Stadium. The best goal in the best cup final of all time at Wembley, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, and I was lucky enough to meet Ricky Villa when I wrote one of the books a few years ago. And he is a lovely, lovely man. Fantastic guy. Um, so uh, that's, that's the... The favourite moment. Um, I think that the second favourite moment was was, a, was another odd one. Which was in 1995 at FA Cup quarter final at Anfield, where um, Sheringham and Klinsman scored two brilliant goals. We were fantastic, and the team was so good that the cop applauded us off at the end. And I think there were 6,000 Spurs fans up there in the whole of the uh, Anfield road end, and the support was some of the best I've ever stood in. It was an absolutely brilliant day. So. Um, some of the off-the-pitch stuff is, is, uh, has been as important as what's gone on on the pitch as well, I think, uh, in terms of the experience. Um, the first live game I went to was in 1978 in the old second division. Um, Spurs against Bolton Wanderers. They were top, I think, and we were second towards the end of the season, both going for promotion. There were 52,000 in there. We won 1-0. Don McAllister scored with a diving header, I think, in the 34th minute, if I, if I remember that rightly. Um, so, yes, so that's my kind of Spurs stuff. Uh, my kind of all-time favourite player, oddly enough, is somebody who I never saw play, but I've just always loved what he represented and what he was about, and that's Danny Blanchflower. Um, and I don't know why I've had that, that, that fascination, but I just think he's just a really, really fascinating character. Um, the best player I've, I've seen since I've been going, the best player I've seen live is, is Glenn Hoddle, without a shadow of a doubt. I was going to say, but your um, Mickey's partner, um, Paul, he's a big Hoddle yeah. fan. Yeah, huge. Uh, um, he, uh, we were actually talking about it in the previous podcast where his dad, um, Paul's dad, was a West Ham supporter. And Paul was a footballer. And when he saw Glenn Hoddle play, that's it. He switched allegiances to Spurs and modelled everything that he did on Hoddle. He was, he's just such a huge he, fan. <laughs> he, he had that effect on people. And the, the funny story about uh, when you say that is that when I, I interviewed them, I said Ricky V and Ozzy Ardiles. And apparently when they first came over in 1978 and they went to the training ground, they saw Hoddle. And Ricky V turned around to Ozzy Ardiles and said, uh, why have they brought us? They've got him. <laughs> and I mean, these two guys have just won the World Cup, and he was like quite a young player who had sort of come to prominence the season before. So uh, that's that's how good he was. He was rated. Wow, impressive. impressive. So you both, um, you both, both co-chairs of the trust, and to to many people, um, not just in the UK, but but particularly overseas, and we've got lots of listeners overseas, and, and Nikki's one of them, and she's also takes part in. The, uh, in, in, in the podcast, um, we uh, a lot of people don't know what the, what, what, what the trust is. Have either never heard of the trust, or maybe have a vague idea what the tr- trust does. And to some degree, um, well, that's addressed in the article that you kindly wrote to us. And and when we look at the questions and uh, later on, um, a lot of what you do on a day to day basis or um, will come out in that but if you could just briefly summarize in a sentence maybe or a couple of sentences what the trust does um, that'd be fantastic like I said bearing in mind we have lots of listeners overseas who maybe um, aren't fully aware 
I think, um, I mean, I would say, rather than sort of drone on endlessly about uh, constitutional matters, uh, do, do read the article on the website because there's a link to an article which, which talks about where the trust movement in the UK came from. But I think basically trusts are, are there to give the fans of sporting clubs uh, a voice uh, in the running uh, of those clubs, uh, and if not in the running, certainly to give them a voice so that the, the people who do run those clubs take some notice. And the, the general idea is that if you give people a bit of a stake in something that they care about, uh, then you benefit and so do they. Okay. So, I, I could I just ask because I found this this part quite interesting in the article, um, where you talk about obviously you deal with some big issues and and um, one of them was talking about the new stadium etc. But you also work on the smaller issues and you say here um, where you talk about the quality of the catering access issues and boosting the voice of overseas fans. What do you mean by that? How does how does that benefit us, for example? What the, the boosting the voice of the overseas fans? Um, yeah. it, it's it's an interesting conversation uh, that we're having at the moment. We've got quite a lot of the official overseas supporters clubs uh, affiliated to the trust and. Part of the conversation that's going on at the moment is uh, what is it that those fans want? Because in terms of being a supporters organisation, there are you know the day-to-day ticketing issues that we deal with. Obviously, you've got to be able to get to the ground fairly regularly to be as important. If you're living in uh, in America or in Australia, uh, where we've got a lot of fans, then you're not going to be travelling to White Hart Lane fairly regularly. But you still want to show your support um, to the club. Uh, and so we have, we're having a conversation here because we're not a marketing arm of the club. We're not there to, to help them commercially. And a lot of the time, what a lot of overseas fans want is, you know, can we get some kind of cheaper merchandise or, uh, you know, is there a way that, you know, when we're all gathering together to watch the game, we can do something as well. What, what we're trying to do in terms of giving, uh, when we say giving the overseas fans a bit more of a voice is find out exactly what it is that they're not getting from maybe that commercial relationship from the club. Uh, you know, is there a way that we can represent uh, particular things that they're concerned about? Uh, you know, it may be that we find out in the end that, that we can't, but it just seems at the moment that overseas fans are simply seen uh, as a potential source of income. And I think like fans everywhere, uh, overseas fans want to have some kind of more solid connection to the club. They want to feel a little bit more as if they're part of it. So one of the ideas that we've suggested to the club, which again come from talking to overseas fans, and I think it's important that we don't just decide what people want, we ask people what they want as well, and we say to the club that's a good idea. Um, one of the yeah. ideas that we've suggested is an overseas fans council, uh, and that may well be something that deals primarily with if we want to organise a plain load of people that are going to come from Stockholm or Dallas or Brisbane or whatever for a game, how can we do that? Can we get some kind of discount? Can we get some tour? Can we maybe meet a player? You know, something like that. Uh, and it may be that our role is simply to facilitate those groups getting in touch with the club. Um, but I think if they're in touch with people that have got that kind of fans perspective primarily, uh, it might be something that helps them. But, you know, to be honest, it's a slightly rambling answer, but we're having that conversation about how can we best do that uh, and what is it that fans overseas want uh, that, that may be different um, to fans in the UK. Well, one of the interesting things we did find, we were on the uh, Hotspur America podcast a couple of weeks ago uh, and talking about um, this idea of, you know, the, the one game in the Premier League being played overseas. And there was a whole argument about that. And a lot of the UK fan organisations came out against that and they said that that would, that would spoil the, uh, you know, the, the integrity and the quality of the competition. Um, and we were talking to, and we thought, you know, well, is that something that overseas people say, well, actually, we want to see our, our, our club here. 
And there was quite a strong line from, from the guys in America who were saying, uh, you know, in some way that they don't want to see NFL games played overseas because it's an American game. But, you know, Tottenham at White Hart Lane is where they play. So if you want to go and see mm-hmm. Barcelona, you want to go to their stadium, you don't want to see them play somewhere else. And so it was almost that they were even fiercer in their opposition to the idea of a game being played overseas. And that was an interesting... It's a isn't it, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of football authorities were saying, oh, you know, that all of the overseas fans will want this. But as usual, the fans aren't asked. People just, you no. know, running football claim to, to say, <laughs> uh, you know, claim to know what people think. So, think, you know, things like that are, are, are interesting because we can then say, well, actually, we've spoken to people and they don't agree with that or they don't think that. And what they want is something that's slightly different. I'll just jump in here quickly. So we have 25 supporters clubs, overseas supporters clubs, who are members of the Trust at this moment in time. So as well as feeding back their wish list, as it were, and their request to Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, we also kind of facilitate a networking. So we introduce different trusts to different trusts, sorry, different supporters clubs to different supporters clubs through the Trust so they can have a dialogue themselves. So there's like a cross-learning thing going on as well. So it's kind of creating a little community. That's kind of what we do also. Right. Off those um, smaller but still important stuff that uh, that, that Nikki referred to um, in, mm-hmm. or in, in, in the article, one of them, of course, was catering. Um, and I <laughs> should t- should take this opportunity to um, thank Kat for her work in bringing back <laughs> smoked salmon bagels to to, to the South Lower. Um, this is yeah, something yeah, my which. Finest moment. Uh, well, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure you've done. I'm sure you've had, had very fine mo- moments along the years, but, but for, for me personally, um, this has been a little bit of an in-joke on, on, on the Tottenham Hotspur Family podcast, but um, I had been um, campaigning for a few months and writing to the club and trying to get, get an oh, answer. Oh, have you really? I was, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was trying to get an answer from them as to why you could get them in the upper tiers, um, the East Upper, for instance, but not in, not in the lower tiers. And yeah. eventually, it sort of actually coincided with, with, with the time that you stepped in. Um, a gentleman who um, you know, and I've I've also met at the Leicester game, or before the Leicester game, a guy called Terry Buxton. Oh, yeah, yeah, Catering yeah. manager, really nice guy. He spoke, yeah. he spoke to me before the, um, a few weeks before the Leicester game, and he, and he mentioned um, that in parallel to me... Um, battering the club for several months that <laughs> you had also spoken to him and that um smoked salmon bagels would be would would would, would, would be the part lane low and lo and behold um at the i um... take the credit for that if i were you mate you can have that one <laughs> <laughs> it's a small thing you see it all builds up to big experience yeah the, the irony is so at, at that at, at the left game we, we mess up beforehand and he was kind enough to Buy, even buy a bagel for me, which was very, very, very oh, wow. nice of him to do that. Um, the irony is, for the past five weeks, I've I've stopped eating bread. Um, no. So um, I haven't really been able to enjoy. I mean, there, there is work still to be done because Martin has a bagel for me, Mark. I've got a massive bugbear about this as well, considering you know our, our, our history. Because every time I ask for a smoked salmon and cream cheese bagel, they bring me two bagels. It's one bagel. How could it not be one bagel? <laughs> you know, that is the bagel, isn't it? But anyway, so you know, this, this is now going to turn into this. Is this is going to go either into the press or onto another podcast? Is that all they did was talk about bagels? You know, what about winning the league? 
I think the important, well, there's two important underlying points there, and it's not really about bagels, but it's it's about the fact that well, it's about bagels. It's about the fact that I, I suppose Tottenham has got this tradition of being, you know, with football clubs you you sort of associate Bovril and and pies and and burgers and whatnot. Yeah. But Spurs, you can get smoked some bagel, and that's a tradition that's, that's gone way back. But also. Cool. Um, where the trust is concerned, um, although it's one of those small things, the fact that you've campaigned for it and you've got the sort of ch- channels and, and you're able to talk to um, the catering manager and, and people within the club and, and get that looked at is it's really good. And it just sort of shows that um, it, it underlies some of the work that the, 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 the trust does, albeit I'm sure that there are far more important things that, that you've achieved along the way. I, I think that's right. I mean, there, there, there is a serious point there, and it goes back to, you know, sort of what, what are you there and what, you know, sort of what's the basic idea of a trust? Is that, you know, in the end, it's, it's a leisure pursuit, and we are customers that, that go along to, to a business. And, you know, those words are kind of quite loaded, but that's, that's what it is. And it obviously means a lot more to us than, than just a sort of business and an exchange of money. But if we're going along, uh, we should be treated uh, well, uh, you know, uh, and not taken for granted. And I think for a long, long time, uh, certainly in the game uh, in England, um, supporters were taken for granted. They turned up, they paid their money, and that was it. It doesn't matter if there were no ladies' toilets. It doesn't matter if the facilities are squalid. It doesn't matter if the food's rubbish and overpriced. Uh, and, you know, they, they do seem like little things, but it's all part of saying, actually, we're quite important as well, and we should be treated with a little bit of respect. And maybe if we want something, you know, there's a mutual benefit, you know, in improving the food, for example, because the club makes some money and we have a better experience. So it's that whole thing of, of saying, uh, you know what, when you're thinking about a football club and the players and the business side of it and the balance sheet and whatever, think about the fans as well, because we're quite an important part of the mm. equation. Absolutely. And that's not to sound self-important, but, you know, there is that football without fans is nothing, which I, I see that, you know, you've used on the photos of that, that banner on the article. But, mm. but that is true, and it's something that, that we push at every opportunity. Absolutely. You, you, you summed it up perfectly in your, your opening line on the article, where you said the success of English football is based on the loyalty and passion of football supporters as much as the exploits of those who pull on the shirt. So true. Because without the supporters, there is, you know, the team's not going to be popular. Nobody's going to support that, yeah. Nobody's going to buy the merchandise. Nobody's going to go to the games. Yeah. Nope. yeah. We're, we're part of the equation. I mean, I think sometimes people say, you know, the people involved in the supporters' movement or supporter activists, whatever you want to call them, think that the fans are the most important part. And I don't really think any of us do. That In the end, all of us, we, you know, we're supporters. We support the team. We think the team is the most important thing. But it's just... You know, sort of saying, seeing us as part of the equation uh, and, and, and giving us a little uh, bit of respect, especially with the amount of money that most of us put into the club as well. Yeah, well, part Not, of the, that is the only the measure of the support, but you know, yeah, yeah. Okay, so before we dive into questions, um, just Nikki, you just a reminder um, the article was published earlier today. Yeah, the article was published this morning and you can find it on our webpage, the Tottenham Hotspur Family Podcast.com. And um, so far, we've we've had quite a few hits on it and quite a good response from reading the article. And we're hoping that after this podcast, we'll get you know more exposure to it because it's really really interesting, and and it it tells you exactly what the THST does. So thanks, Martin. We really do appreciate you writing it for us. No, thanks for giving us the opportunity to uh, to tell people what we do. 
Okay, so we've we've had a number of questions from um, listeners, and I, and I will try to get through as many as as I can. I don't know if we can get through all of them, but we'll certainly endeavour to do that. So the very first question from Jess Nickel, Jess asks, is it right that that the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust have exclusive access to the club, despite not being elected by the majority of fans to represent us? Who elected you? Do you want okay, to start? Uh, if not. Yeah, I'll start on that. Um, I, I think that's a good question uh, because uh, we don't have exclusive access to the club. Uh, the club talks to a number of groups, including the LGBT group, including the Disabled Supporters Association, uh, and we are one of a number of groups that the clubs talk to. I think where we would say that we're different is that we are uh, the largest and most organised uh, of the groups, and the trust originally sort of was formed from a coming together of a number of, uh, of different fan organisations that had grown up through. Uh, through the 80s and 90s, uh, which in turn were a product of, of, of supporter groups turning from simply groups that organised travel and cake sales at clubs and were taken no notice of by the people who ran football clubs into uh, organisations that said, you know, we want a little bit more influence in what goes on and we want you to listen to what we're saying as well as uh, as, as rely on the money that we put into the club. Um, so... I think that's what we are. We, we don't claim to, to represent all Spurs fans either um, because that's an impossible task. And if you take the, the club, I think claims it, they claim the, what is it, there are 8 million Spurs fans globally. So, you know, even in our own membership, there are people with different political views, different social views, different views on, you know, all sorts of things as well. What we try and do is make sure that we are as representative as possible uh, of the things that uh, a majority of Spurs fans are saying on any particular issue. People are going to disagree on particular things, but we think that uh, we, we think it's important to take a position. So, for example, when the, the big row over moving to Stratford was going on, there was an argument that said that a supporters organisation shouldn't take a position because some supporters wanted to go to Stratford and others didn't. Um, those of us that are involved now thought that that was a daft position because it's such an important issue, we had to take a stand on that. If you take a stand on something and people back you, you get somewhere. And if they don't back you, then you don't get anywhere. Uh, people back that stand, uh, and, and here we are now uh, still in White Hot Lane. I don't know we're going to come on to some of this later as well. So it's important to take a position. It's important to argue for that position. Uh, it's important to, to, to find out if we are genuinely representing uh, people's opinion uh, as well. Um, but we are, we are elected and we are a democratic organisation. I think that's something that, that probably Kat can usefully come on to. Yeah, absolutely. So just to clarify here, um, the difference between us, the LGBT group and the Disabled Supporters Association is we're fully independent. So we are not affiliated to the club in any way. We maintain and we fiercely defend our independence here. So we're a democratic organisation. We hold elections every single year. Every full member of the trust is entitled to stand for election, and every full member of the trust is encouraged to vote in those elections. So that, that's who's electing us, to answer at the top of the question. Um, we currently have a board of nine, four of whom joined in February this year. So, you know, it, there's, there's you know, new input, new blood, new ideas coming through every year. Um, a third of the board have to stand for re-election each year as well, so there's a bit of a churn going on there, which is healthy. Um, the club, as in Tottenham, does recognise the trust as a formal fan independent group. Uh, they undertake to meet with us three times a year on a board-to-board -board level. So that's our board with the executive board of Tottenham Hotspur. And we also speak with several senior members of staff on a daily basis. So hopefully that kind of answers the question there for you guys. Uh, as a supp supplementary question to that, um, I've got uh -huh. one, which, or two in fact, which is, so... 
um, you, you've obviously got real jobs and 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 and, yeah. and uh, this is done on a voluntary basis. So how much of your time does that take up? And I think that's important, particularly because way too much. Okay. Too much, yeah. That's fine. I think fans need to appreciate that. And then, secondly, let's just say somebody wanted to join join the trust for uh-huh. the sake, sake of argument. If I if I listen to this and I thought, oh, I'd, I'd I'd like to, to 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 play a part. How does one join the trust? Okay, so probably the easiest thing is to direct you to our website, which is www.thstofficial.com. There is a one-click membership option there. So just click literally into the membership page and it will take you through it. We offer various strands of membership. So the, you know, bells and whistles, all singing, all dancing membership is your, your full membership. That's £10 a year for adults or £5 a year for under 18s and over 65s. But we also offer a strand called associate membership. So that's kind of a taster, really. Suck it and see. If you like what we're doing, then come and join us. That's completely free. Uh, and then we offer a special package for supporters clubs as well. So have a look on the website. That's the easiest way to join us. And, and email us with any questions. If, if you're you know, interested in what we do but not quite sure what you'd be getting for your money, then drop us an email at info at thstofficial.com. Right. Right. Um, there's a uh, Edward Brad from our group also asked a question, and uh, we we sort of covered it already um, because he asked as a layman, what would the trust do, and how do they, if that all influence the club? So you've just pretty much covered that with the fact that you you meet at board level a few times a year. Mm-hmm. So I, I, yeah, yeah, I mean. Uh, I think that there's two bits of that answer, and I think the you know uh, how do we influence the club is probably the key part of that question after what we've yeah. um, uh, after what we've covered earlier. And I think the first thing I'd say is that uh, you either believe that fans should have a voice or you don't. And if you believe that fans should have a voice, as we obviously do, then uh, that voice has to be organised. Uh, otherwise, uh, it isn't going to get anywhere. So I think. You know, it's it's if you believe in the general principle, you should get involved in some way. Um, do we influence the club? To be perfectly honest, not as much as we'd like. And I think again, if people go back and read about the the, the trust movement, where trusts have been very very successful in terms of ownership and you know actually running clubs and influencing owners, have been further down the league. We're talking about not just a football club, but we're talking about a global multi-billion-pound business here. Uh, are fans ever going to buy Tottenham Hotspur? I very much doubt it. Are we going to buy a part of it? I very much doubt it. And in the end, it comes, they're private businesses. It comes down to money and who owns it as well. What we're about is strengthening the link between that business, if you like, uh, and about the fans. And I think at the moment, um, we're, we're probably an irritant uh, to the club in that there are some things that they would probably like to do and they'd like to do a bit more easily than they can, which they can't, uh, because I don't think they're particularly, and this is no different to anybody else in, in, in senior levels of, of top football, I don't think they're particularly well disposed to consulting. I think they like to be able to get on with doing their own thing as well. But they realise that we are quite organised, we have got a voice, we have got some influence among supporters and in the national supporters movement uh, in this country as well, which has been getting very active over things like ticket prices. So uh, they have to talk to us, they have to make sure that you know we're not going to be very, very anti-things that they're doing. So, you know, that's not the most kind of revolutionary rallying cry in terms of what influence can we, can we have. But I think it's important to be realistic about that as well. Um, and we'll, I know there are some other questions later about specific things we, we've achieved. So we'll, we'll come on to that then. But I'll just say that, you know, without us, um, there wouldn't be a possibility of having any influence. With us, uh, we can potentially have some influence and we can build on the influence that we do have. 
So in, in terms of those achievements, uh, Mark Burson asks, well, he's got a fairly loaded question. So he, he asks, what are your three what, what are your three top priorities? What's your biggest single achievement over the last three years? Um, and although this to some degree covered later on when we look at the stadium, how much involvement have you got in the relocation plan? Not just where it is, but the arrangements being made, the fans and the season ticket holders. Okay, let's chunk this down, and Martin, feel free to jump in. So our priorities obviously change. At the moment, we would say that our top three priorities are to reduce ticket pricing. That's a national campaign. The, we, you know, we campaign with Tottenham to, to lower their ticket pricing. We've had some success on, on that as well in terms of season ticket price freezes and, and concessions being extended up to under 18. Um, retaining the club's London identity, that's crucial for us at the moment as we're talking about potentially moving to Buckinghamshire for a grand share season and making sure there's proper fan input into the new stadium uh, and that, you know, establishing a permanent and effective voice for fans at the club. So they're kind of our top three at the moment. Uh, do you agree on that, Martin? Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd say that. Um, I think in terms of achievements to date, I mean, Kat's mentioned a few of those things. Uh, you know, there's been a season ticket price freeze for two seasons in a row. That's been a major thing that we've pushed for. Uh, the age of concessionary tickets has, has gone up to, our, uh, to under 18, which means that you know we can get a lot of the, the, the younger fans in. Uh, we've managed to get uh, the Premier League itself to change a rule which moves away tickets onto a sale or return basis. So that means that we've got bigger away allocations for uh, for our fans to go and support the club. Uh, this year, the club wanted to bring the renewal date for season tickets forward uh, into a, a kind of preceding payment for a lot of people. And we argued with that and they, they ended up accepting that they needed to go back to the original renewal date as well. So you know, it was a small victory, but it was something that saved people a little bit of money. Um, our national campaigning, we've, uh, as part of the Away Friends Initiative, we've ensured um, free coaches to some games to support us clubs each season as well. Uh, we've managed to get subsidised train travel to games as well. Uh, we've also got the club to support the idea of, of reintroducing safe standing. Uh, if the uh, legislation in the UK allows safe standards to be uh, supported, and that's, that's something that is is, a, is quite a big national campaign, uh, and it's also something that we see as being important in, in the efforts to bring ticket prices down as well, uh, and you know, and enable more people to actually turn up and see uh, see the team play. So, uh, you know, that's probably some of the bigger achievements that we've got. The, the, the smaller things are, you know, they are in a way too small to go into, but they're, they're very important. That. There are lots of day-to-day ticketing issues. There are issues with fans who maybe have kind of been slightly unwise and they've had a bit too much to drink and they get into trouble with the stewards and you know not got involved in anything serious, but maybe they'll find themselves on on the edge of the pitch because there's been a big surge when the when we've scored a goal. Uh, and we try and argue for a bit of a common sense approach. And a lot of the time, the football authorities will tend to take a hard line with football fans because they're football fans. Uh, and we've done a lot of individual representation ourselves. We put people in touch with legal advice if it, if it goes far enough to do that. So, uh, I, and I think what that does is give individual fans confidence that they should be treated better uh, when they go along and support their team, when they go along to this entertainment event in this incredibly successful industry that's always saying how successful it is. So um, I, I think that kind of confidence building among fans is, is quite an important thing. And uh, it's something that I'm quite proud of that we've been involved in as well. Uh, if, you're, if you guys, are, your listeners are really interested, there is a list. Of, uh, we, we don't particularly like this word, but we're going to use it. A list of our wins, and it's on our homepage <laughs> on our website. So our biggest achievement since we were re-established uh, you know, two and a half years ago. Um, I will just add one more thing into that, because I tend to do a lot of the back-end work. 
So basically, I think probably the biggest achievement we have is relaunching the trust from a defunct database, um, building that into an organisation that represents over 10,000 fans with a social media reach of over 30,000 people and establishing ourselves on the national stage. So we've ensured that Spurs fans have a voice uh, at the Premier League. So I'm involved in Premier League ticketing discussions as a Tottenham fan rep. Uh, and with the FA, again, I've sat in there to discuss you know, FA um, Cup away allocations and all that kind of jazz, um, as well as obviously being very visible on the national supporter group level. So for me, that's a, that's probably our biggest achievement. Um, there was one more question, one more point to this question, wasn't there? Yeah, the relocation how, plan. That's right. How much involvement have you got in the relocation plan? And okay. not, not just where it is, but the arrangements being made for fans, season ticket holders. Yeah, yeah. So I presume he means ground share when he refers to relocation. To be quite honest, the club are being, being fairly sketchy about this at the moment. They're, they're appealing to patience here. So when we last met with them, they couldn't reveal an awful lot of details to say, you know, it's a very complex procedure. They're asking for a sort of patient and just take a step back. We've put in requests for meetings specifically with the ticketing team at Tottenham uh, when they're in a position to discuss that. So we obviously want to be as involved as possible you know, in moving season ticket holders, you know, into a grand share venue or into the new stadium. But at the moment, there is no ground share venue that's been named. So without knowing what the allocation is, uh, without knowing you know, the capacity, then it's, it's pretty impossible to start drilling down into any detail. But it's probably a little bit too early to be answering that question. Okay. okay. All right. Um, next question I've got is from a lady called Caroline Ferguson. She actually changed her name on Facebook to Caroline Pochettino in support for, <laughs> our, for our coach. Um, and it's a bit of a long question. She asks... What is Daniel Levy really like, and do you trust what he tells you? So many fans don't trust him, mainly due to the fact that he doesn't say much publicly. The trust actually gets to have an audience with him. So what can they tell the fans about how he comes across in reality, and what would they say to fans who regularly accuse him and Enoch of only being interested in profit? I'll take the top part of this question. So I've met Daniel Levy three or four times now. Um... He's obviously very professional. He's a hugely successful businessman. Um, so he has that kind of, you know, quiet, confident aura about him. Um, he's not going to be the one who sits in the meeting and cracks jokes, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> he, he is a fan, and we feel that that's quite often overlooked. Um, but, yeah, you know, he, he was a Tottenham Hotspur fan long before he became the chairman of, of, of our club. He's clearly highly competent. Um, I think it's fair to say that he operates better in smaller groups. Um, I can't see him wanting to, you know, speak in front of thousands of people, hence probably lack of, you know, media and that kind of stuff. Um, Martin, do you want to pick up on the part about the business? Yeah, because I, I think I think that's a really important point because it's something where, you know, if I, when I say what I'm going to say, I'm sure some fans will, will kind of criticise that as being too orientated towards the business side. And it's ironic because I think that in terms of you saying what, what's Levy like, I think that he feels that uh, the, you know, the, the way that the, the business stewardship of the club, if you want to call it that, it's horrible jargon, isn't it? Uh, uh, and the achievements that they've made on that side of things uh, are overlooked and we don't get that and we're just interested in them spending loads of money and, you know, it's all about trophies or whatever. Um, and I, I don't think, I don't think that's true either. And I think that it's important that as fans we don't, 
disregard the value of the club being run as a good business. Uh, and there's a lot of things to be critical uh, about on the commercial side of the game. And I personally am very critical of a lot of the commercialization of the game as well. Uh, but also we've seen clubs, you know, Leeds United being the famous example in, in English football that have massively overspent and, and have damaged their ability to compete as well. Um, so I'd say that, you know, breaking even and not getting into debt and being sustainable, which are things that Spurs have talked about and have done for quite a long time. But those things are important as well. Uh, as the sporting side of it. And I think where the argument comes in is what is the balance between the business success and the sporting success? And in the end, you know, this is a sport, and the point of a sport is to win the things that you play. Right? That, that's what the success is. That's what provides the entertainment. Um, so it's getting the balance. You, know, you can't compete without being a well-run business, but also you know, your business is going to be more successful if you're, if you're competing and if you're successful on the pitch. So it's about balance. And it's also about who, who reaps the benefit of, of the successful business side of the club. So the club would no doubt say, you know, if we run the, uh, a successful business and we produce a, a title-winning or a cup-winning team, then you, the fans, get the benefit because you see your club win something. And I think we'd say, well, OK, we agree with that up to a point, but we'd also say if we're the club that's made the biggest profit in the history of the Premier League, which we have, they made an £80 million profit last year, it should be right that we talk about whether that profit can help offset the fact that our fans pay some of the highest ticket prices in the Premier League as well. So who gets the benefit of the club being a successful business? Now, is it just the directors? Is it just money that's going to be spent on the team? Or should some of that go back into, if you want to call it that, the community of Spurs supporters as well? So I'd say, and I think it is a view that we've pushed uh, uh, as a as as an individual trust and the trust movement pushes as well, that being run as a good business, it's not a bad thing in itself. It's only a bad thing if that's divorced from sporting success and from sharing the benefits of that business success. And some of the worst owners in English football have been the people who have come in, uh, milked the club for as much profit as possible, taken that away and then let the team uh, go down the tubes. And in the end, it's using the supporters to get together to bail those teams out. Out. So it's it's about balancing, and you know it's kind of quite popular to just take the, you know everything that's bad about football is about the commercial side of it. The reality is that you know in this age it is a business as well. So we're talking about how the benefits of that business are, are, are shared out. You know what the relationship between on-field and off-field success is, if you like. So it's a bit of a kind of rambling answer mm-hmm. as his points and, and yeah. a complicated uh, one, but I think it's an important point uh, for people to to think about and to debate maybe. And, and you're right. And thought whether we like it or not, it, it's a harsh reality or, or a reality that football ha- is and has been for quite a few years now a business. Um, and if you go back to um, when Irvin Scholar was chairman and you know pre-Sugar days, um, the club was financially, um, you know, wasn't in 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 a good state. And um, I know that Levy um, has detracted. Uh, detractors and, and 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 he comes through a lot of criticism i'm not going to defend him because i think some of some of the stuff that he's done in terms of ma- the managerial merry go around and managers um you know being chopped chopped and changed is perhaps not the wisest thing but um i think we'd a, agree yeah but from a financial point of view you know he's the club's in a healthy position and i think that if you're get if you're going to be successful as a football club you need to have a solid foundation and, and I think there'd be you'd be hard pushed to find a, a, a Tottenham fan that would um, argue against the fact that the, 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 the foundations aren't 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 there. We've set all the foundations in place, and hopefully we we can move 
and build bigger things. And talking of building stuff, so we've got about a handful of questions on, on the new stadium. Um, Rebecca Braddock asks, how does the trust anticipate season ticket holders choosing their seats in the new stadium potluck, or will there be um, an area dedicated to them? So this is as this is a discussion that I've been having with our head of ticketing and membership, at Guy Cordy and Murphy, over the past eighteen months now. Because this whole kind of what they call fan migration program is one of the major reasons that I got involved in the trust in the first place. Um, I want to make sure that when that stadium is built with fans at its heart, hopefully, they get the pricing right, they get the sight lines right, and they get the right fans in the right area to contribute to the atmosphere. So from what I can gather, at the moment, this is probably taking about 60% of his time, even though we haven't laid a brick on the stadium yet. There will be a full programme. So my understanding is that you will be asked who you want to sit with and where you want to sit. So it's not going to be potluck at all. Uh, the huge cop end that, that still remains, I would think it's going to be vastly popular. I kind of anticipate that being our, our new park lane, as it were. Um, but yes, I mean, it's very sketchy at the moment. I don't have any, you know, fine details that I can share. But it's something that the club will do properly and will take time to make sure that their current season ticket holders and the people on the waiting list who are going to be offered season tickets get to sit where they want to sit because that's vastly important. Do you think, um, I was at the... Carter Sound Belgrade game um, uh-huh. earlier this season, and we briefly met, um, although you might not remember me, and, and, and you introduced me to the um, Harry Kane song that sung, <laughs> that, that, that the away fans sing. Um, that sounds like Cat. And, um, <laughs> and you had uh, Felonius from the Fighting Cock playing the the, the drums. And, and, yeah, you know, that, it, don't, it was, it was don't really... even talk about the drum that night. That was hilarious. <laughs> Did you know what happened? <laughs> No. Okay, so I had a meeting with the club last summer uh, with Danny, who is the drummer, to basically go in there and say, look, we'd like the drum back, give him a chance, you know, it's it's all going to be great, it'll help the atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. So the club agreed to let Danny bring the drum in for selected European home ties, Europa League ties. So this one particular night, I cleared it with the club that Danny could have the drum. And the deal is the drum lives at the club. So we have to go and collect it before the game. So it's like half past seven. The match is starting at what, quarter to quarter to eight, eight o'clock. I have to meet our SLO, our supporter liaison officer, the pitch side to pick up this drum with Danny at this particular time, like 10 minutes before kickoff. I'm ringing and ringing Danny's phone. He's not answering. I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So I thought, OK, I'm just going to have to go and collect this drum on my own. And Danny's going to turn up and it'll all be fine. So there I am collecting the drum from the front of the stand. It's already really busy in the stadium. Danny didn't pick up his phone and he didn't turn up. So I'm left with this drum. So after about 10 minutes of trying to drum it myself, and you've got to be really cautious because there's certain rhythms they won't let you drum in there. I'm literally so pleased to see Thelonious. Tyrone, please take the drum from me. It was probably one of the most stressful nights of my life. (laughs) And he he did a good job. He Um, did a great job. I know, he he, he can do that full time if you want. So, talk, talking of, of of the eighteen eighty two movement, and I know that they tend to target particular games, usually youth games or, or European ties. Um, do you think within the new stadium there will be um, a similar sort of? I I don't want to call it um, organised. Just call it. Just call it a thing eviction, babe. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I yeah, think I mean, it, it's something. We're having discussions. 
We're having discussions with the club about this anyway. Uh, I mean, we try and bring in different groups to meet with different members of the, you know, the staff at Tottenham Hotspur. Um, 1882, the Fighting Cock lads already have a relationship with a, a good, a good member of, you know, good number of the staff over at Spurs. So they don't really need that many introductions. But we, we try and work with them to make sure that they are even blocked where possible. The, the club are vastly behind this kind of thing. So I don't think it will be any shock in the new stadium that that's something that we're all working towards that they are kind of given a permanent block or two blocks you know we kind of need that really to ensure that there's an atmosphere going of course pricing is essential here because the, the demographic that go along to the, Euro, the Europa League games and participate in the youth the youth games of the 1882 movement are not the demographic that's going to pay 60 70 pounds for a Premier League game so you know that needs to be a consideration as well to be utterly mm-hmm. honest with you but yeah I think there's the broad support for having a section where people who want to sing and want to, you know, behave in that manner are fully entitled to do so without annoying the older guard who like to sit down and applaud politely. And I think there's, there's a couple of other important points there because I think, you know, 1882 have got their own relationship with the club. But at, at the start of when they started trying to organise people and they were basically putting stuff out on the internet saying, you know, buy tickets in this block, let's all get together and get behind the team, that the club were a bit suspicious uh, of, of what was going on, and I think they were thinking, "What we you know? What are these guys trying to do?" And I think at one stage they suspended ticket sales to their own fans who were trying to buy stuff together in a block. So I think that was one of the times where we got involved. We said, "Look, this is yeah. just fans that want to support the club," but we didn't say to 1882, "You know, come in with us and we'll do it all for you." We said, "You know, we'll we'll help with the introductions. We'll put you in touch. We'll vouch for you and say that you know you're proper fans and the club should talk to you." And I think what's come out of that is a couple of things. One is that you know, in the, in the way that we work, it's not like this old kind of, if you like, sort of trade union organisation where people come over and say, well, we're the leaders and stick behind us, that we, we will work collectively with people if they're trying to achieve the same thing we are. But I think the club has also heard from uh, the involvement that they've had with 1882 and from us and the various conversations that the, the, the three groups, if you like, of us have had is that there's a suspicion of, um, of this kind of corporate sponsored fandom that goes on you know at Chelsea they've got those and at Arsenal they've got those stupid big flags that the club employees kind of wave around at the front of things as well (laughs) you know and it's officially sponsored and I think that we've said I think the club are quite nervous about it but we've said that you know that the great thing about the support of Spurs is that it's spontaneous it's something that comes from the stands and the fans push it themselves as well and we don't want some kind of plastic club sponsored corporate flag waving exercise what we want is to enable fans to express the passion uh, that they're famous for and it's still we know still right about white heart lane no lemonade i was going to say isn't that what the the the, the, um the emirates is famous for the horrible laminated cars some of their fan groups are campaigning against that as well. I mean, but, you know, it's kind of after the event. So in a way that, you know, it's another thing that we'd say is, is a bit of a success. It's one of those kind of slow burners that we're at least having that conversation and saying that, you know, let's not, let's not go down the kind of plastic corporate sponsored support route. Let's actually keep the passion, you know, as yeah. real uh, as, as people acknowledge it is at the ground sometimes. Yeah, and, you know, we, we kind of describe it as organic, organic don't we? Yeah, planet it's organic, organic is what we are, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Rebecca also asked about Rebecca Braddock also asked about uh, the trust views on safe standing, but I think I think you touched on that earlier. And then she asks about whether there's any truth in the NFL rumours. Okay, um, she'd need to ask the club directly. I mean, we've obviously I've sat in meetings with Daniel and Donna and asked the question whether it will be a multi-purpose stadium and multi-purpose venue. Um, everything's up in the air at the moment. 
So it hasn't been ruled out. And the eagle-eyed people who would have noted the changing to the planning application a few weeks ago, um, there was this big underground changing room. And it was very reminiscent of an NFL changing room. So, um, you know, the conspiracy theorists are out there. Uh, I personally would think it is being discussed, yeah. Okay. Okay. Purely um, speculating. John... John Rayworth and Meta Pathy, they asked a similar sort of question, or same question, in fact. Um, do you know why the original plans for White Hart Lane are no longer in the equation? Um, uh, and were ditched in favor, why were they ditched in favour of um, the new plans? Um, and if you don't know, have you ever asked that question? Yeah, we do know. Um, it's fully documented in the minutes of our board to board meeting that took place last November. So if John wants to go onto our website, <clears throat> just hit the archive for November 2014. He'll find that answer in full. But I know Martin can succinctly sum this up for us. Martin? For once. Um, <laughs> yeah, essentially, they said that that, that that plan, which was massively supported, I think, by, by Spurs fans, it was something that we thought was, was, was a really, really good idea, um, was uh, to come up with in 2006, 2007, uh, what happened, of course, the next year is that there was a global financial crash. Uh, the economic situation in the world has changed. And what they, what they are telling us is that the, uh, the risks associated with playing in a partially demolished stadium are too great for them to be able to secure the necessary level of financial support from the banks and other financial institutions that they need to put together for what is a massively expensive project. And it is being funded exclusively by private sector funding. So we've not got the taxpayer helping us out like West Ham got or, or Manchester City got. Uh, it's a totally private sector thing. So that whole thing of risk of raising money is there. Um, whether what you know, whether you believe that or not, or whether you think that, that is the reason that they're saying is there. They've also said quite rightly that you know, moving away from the stadium is not a cheap or an easy option because you've got rental costs associated with sharing a stadium and and all the rest of the complications. But they were just saying that because of bank confidence, basically, um, the banks are much more risk averse now, uh, and they couldn't go ahead with that project. Um, so we think that's that is a real pity that that original uh, rebuild plan. Uh, that was massively supported by fans isn't going to go ahead. There is an argument about whether Spurs could or should have made more effort in settling the outstanding legal case over the compulsory purchase order so that they could have gone ahead with that plan uh, a few years ago. Um, the, the position that we were faced with was that if the club are now saying that might have been a good idea, but now it, we can no longer do it, uh, do we keep saying, well, we need to go back to that, or do we accept they're not going to do that? Let's try and get some more openness about the current plans and see if we can, you know, be as successful as possible in terms of the move that's going on at the moment. So, uh, you know, it, it, it was a huge shame, I think, that we can't do that. And it was, it was a plan that, that was backed. But in the end, if the people that run the club are telling us that they can't, uh, they can't get the financial institutions to support them for doing that, then w we've kind of got to accept that, that it's not going to happen. Okay. Um... Moving along swiftly, so Paul Esau asks, asks about plans to replicate the park lane and the shelf side of the new stadium. We've sort of talked about that earlier. Yeah. Um, David Phipps asks, any insights into the name of the, state of the new stadium or is it being sold to the highest bidder? Okay, so again, we questioned the exec board on this in our last meeting with them. Uh, there's not going to be any news on naming rights until midway through the stadium build. Apparently, now, believe me, I'm not an expert in this, but apparently that is about the time when naming rights are normally agreed, when something is tangible. Uh, it, it's too early at this stage. So expect something uh, 2017, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, 
you'll be glad to know the final two questions on in terms of the stadium so Paul mm-hmm. Esau asks um, uh, there's been talk about um, the NFL potentially playing um, at the new stadium but what about in terms of other community events um, I mean I know in the past um, there's been boxing at White Hart Lane Chris Eubank I remember in 91 I think mm-hmm. memory serves yeah, yeah. me um, so will there be other events taking part particularly where events which, which will benefit the, the local community yeah yeah I mean to be honest it's way too early to be answering these questions we haven't even seen the design for the new stadium yet so uh, let's kind of get over one one hurdle first uh, possibly I would hope so but we honestly don't know and it is probably really really too early to be discussing Okay, and in that transition, in that horrible transition, as we move from White Hart Lane to the new stadium, unfortunately, we'll, we'll be playing somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. And Wilson Keynes has been talked about. Um, have you heard anything, well, from the club as to whether it is going to be Milton Keynes or could it potentially be Wembley? Or what we've heard from the club, and again, it's uh, you know referring people back to the website but we try and put as much information up there so it's there in black and white they can see it the last time we met the club's board we raised the question this has been minuted the club agreed that the minutes were an accurate record at a meeting and what they told us on the record and they didn't tell us anything else off the record was that there were two options left and those options are Wembley and Milton Keynes uh, they uh, haven't told us where they are uh, whether particularly uh, formal approaches have been made or not, whether negotiations can, and they just said that there are those two options, uh, and that's it. Um, so we've kind of taken a position for a long time that we want, you know, some some definite answers before we comment. You know, people say, you know, well, you know, you get a campaign for or against something. While it's all theoretical, it's very difficult to do that. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that we think that we've been quite patient as supporters. It's been over a year since they announced that there could be a move. And the club is talking about moving in 2017-18. So you would think, well, if you've got a date, then presumably you must have an idea of a location as well. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the club think that we're possibly being a bit too impatient uh, in constantly asking the question about where are we going to and what are the reasons for that. Uh, and there have been some what they call full and frank exchanges of views <laughs> over that. Uh, and we will keep having those as well. And I mean, that's not sort of doing the politician's arts and trying to get out of stuff, but, but that is genuinely where we are at the moment. The, the club are essentially saying, you know, yes, that's the two, but we can't really say anything. There's a risk, obviously, of getting into detailed conversations from their point of view, because if they are negotiating, it may be that, you know, negotiating in public is not, is not the, the wisest thing to do. But what we've been told is what I've just told you and what's, what's recorded from the minutes of that meeting on our website. All right. Um, uh, we've got a, a question from a Twitter supporter uh, called AT underscore Spurs. And this person asks, should the Spurs supporters trust be doing more to push back on things like Milton Keynes and StubHub? Okay. Um, I'd say um, that what, how, how are we going to define more? Um, let, let's have a look at I think Milton Keynes, we, we've just talked about. Um, it, at the moment, it's speculation. The club has said that he wants to be patient. We're asking the question. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, and, you know, we've said that we've got serious concerns about the club losing its London identity, uh, as well as issues over transport and issues over Milton Keynes and the, the history of that club itself uh, that, that, uh, that we'd want to address. Uh, so that's the Milton Keynes thing. I think that you know we are aware it's 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 a big issue, but you can't push back on something until you've got something to push back against. Uh, I would say is that one on StubHub. Uh, I think that we did uh, achieve uh, quite a lot of um, success on that. Uh, we'd have preferred in the end that the club got rid of StubHub, 
uh, and we joined a coalition of other fan groups and bloggers and fanzines uh, when uh, the deal was first signed. And what we managed to do was secure some, uh, call them improvements, bits of protection for fans in that. So they stopped the practice of um, people reselling tickets, uh, which was one of the big issues in terms of the, the, the kind of legalised ticket touting, really, which we called it at the start. Uh, that wouldn't have happened unless we'd put pressure on the club uh, and, and started campaigning against it. Um, they put a cap on the, the price that you could sell tickets for. So before people were advertising tickets for ridiculous amounts of money, thousands of pounds, uh, they were being sold for quite high amounts of money as well. I think 450 was the highest, wasn't four, it? 450, yeah. Oh. Against Chelsea, stage, a couple yeah. of seasons ago, yeah. yeah. Um, we, wow. we got a cap put on at 200 pounds. Now, we weren't saying that it's right for fans to sell tickets to other fans for 200 pounds, but a cap of 200 pounds is better than people having to pay 450 pounds. So that wouldn't have been achieved unless we'd have campaigned uh, against the deal with StubHub. What we also did is that we didn't just campaign at Spurs, but uh, there are a number of other supporters' organisations, other clubs campaigning about this, and there's already a campaign going on in the music industry against the involvement of secondary ticket agencies. So we were one of the organisations that was asked to go to an all-party parliamentary group at Houses of Parliament to uh, submit evidence on how... Uh, the involvement of secondary ticketing agencies was detrimental to fans. Uh, There's lots of arguments about how should or could a free market operate as well, but we put the fans' point of view. Uh, there has now been some legislation introduced, I think, towards the end of the last parliament, which offers a little bit more protection to fans in terms of asking where the tickets come from uh, and uh, how far tickets should be resold as well. So what we've done is that we've chipped away at the edges of what was, in our view, was a very, very nasty scheme, which encouraged fans, it was sold as a benefit of being a season ticket holder, that you could sell particular match, match vouchers from your ticket for vastly inflated prices to other fans. And our bottom line is, fans should sell tickets to other fans at face value. Uh, and uh, why should a fan who sells a ticket at face value and meets their mate outside the ground to hand that over be liable to be arrested, which they are, when other people can on the internet sell the tickets for five, six, seven, ten times the face value of the ticket. That seemed completely wrong for us. to us. Mm -hmm. So we did secure yeah. some improvements in the deal. Uh, we wanted the club I to get rid of StubHub. They came back and said, yeah. we've had a massive offer. Uh, we're going um, we're, we're to sign again. We said uh, we weren't happy, but it was clear that they were going to take that offer. Um, so uh, what we then pushed for was a reduction of the price cap down to £150. Remember, I think the most expensive match day ticket is £90 at Spurs. So, uh, and again, we don't, we're not saying you should sell your tickets for £150, uh, but we've got the price cap down as well. There's going to be less pushing uh, in terms of kind of marketing to fans to use the service as well. Uh, and I think the clubs and the football authorities are aware that an association with these kind of organisations is, uh, is not doing the game a lot of good. So I can't see the deal being renewed again uh, at the end of this particular period. There won't be, you know, the situation changes because of the not. stadium at all, doesn't it? It's a two-year deal. They won't renew. You're absolutely right. That whole supply and demand model matrix changes so vastly when we move into a new stadium that that won't be in existence in two years' time. And what, what we I also did is that we pushed the club... Sorry, I was just going to say about the, uh, the, the community project they're going to fund as well. And I can see that is that being bought off as well. But you're in a situation where you can either say, let's stand outside and, and shout, this is wrong, or you can secure the maximum benefits that you can by engaging with people. And we went for the latter route on that. And we'll stand or fall by that. Um, I was just, just going to add on that question, if, if you don't mind me saying. So um, it can be difficult to quantify 
how much you do um for, maybe for some people and I, but i'd like to think that hopefully after people listen to this po- podcast and people read Mar- Mar- martin's article and people took it take a look at the the, the Tom Hotspur Supporters Trust web, um, website and, and the section that Kat referred to about all your achievements. Um, hopefully they'll, they'll get a feeling of what you do and, and how much you how much of your time uh, and, 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 how, and how much effort you've, you've put to achieving things. So, um, so, so that's, that's very kind of you to say so. And I mean, we, we don't we don't do it uh, to get the thanks. Although it's nice to get it. You know, we do it because we think it's important. But uh, it, it is appreciated, and uh, you can get something out of it as well. That's what we'd say. So, uh, if some more people want to get involved, so that we can reduce the amount of time we all spend, that would be good as well. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, I've got another question here from Joby One Kenobi. He asks, uh, it's a rather sanitised version. Did you ever meet Sherwood, and what was he like? <laughs> oh God, I would. So like to say yes. Uh, our paths just never crossed. Uh, we had a board meeting at Tottenham on the afternoon that they sacked him. So <laughs> unfortunately, no, I didn't meet him, and I can't comment. Unfortunately, sorry about that. But great name, JB Wonkanavi. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and Martin, did you ever? Happened to me. I, 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 I never met him, so you know, there was just kind of we knew as much as anybody else how he came across in, in, in the press, really. So, oh, okay, all right. Uh, Paul Esau asks, Would Levy ever do a fly on the wall documentary, <laughs> even if it was for exclusive to Spurs TV, but a no holds bar job, some sanitized PR job, not some sanitized okay. PR job, yeah. Almost categorically, no, that's not really. <laughs> uh, I happen to know uh, via a note uh, that Tottenham were was approached by the BBC last summer. Actually, we were looking to do a found the wall documentary at a Premier League club, and they kind of lined up West Ham. And uh, my friend kind of swooped in as a Tottenham fan and managed to get them a meeting with the board at Tottenham. I actually thought that the board at Tottenham would just turn around and say, "No, go away, it's never happening." But they did have a few chats. Nothing ever came of it. So uh, I kind of don't think so. You've got to ask what he would gain from it, really. Uh, and there is an awful lot of sensitive and confidential work that, that he, he does do, uh, you know, and the board do. I'm not sure what, how true a reflection it could be of the work they do anyway. Um, as an aside, Daniel has agreed to do a fan forum with uh, 65, 71 Hotspur members who will be chosen at random. It was meant to happen at the end of April. So we're waiting on a new date for that. So he is actually biting the bullet and going to stand up in front of the fans. I don't know if that's going to be recorded or not, Yeah, I think we've we, go. we got, we got some other indications of that because the first board meeting I attended, his, uh, his right-hand woman, Donna Cullen, uh, said that. And of course, Martin, you're a journalist and Levy kind of, <clears throat> you know, because <laughs> we all know yeah. what journalists are like as well. Um, <laughs> but but I, 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 this is kind of a personal view, and I mean, a few of us share it, but, but and, and I've, I've actually said this to Donna uh, herself as well in some of the conversations that we've had, that I, I think that, that Daniel Levy's overprotected uh, by the club PR machine. And I know through some of my contacts in, in, in journalism. You know, I'm not in the sports press, but I know people that work in there, and obviously we, we, we deal with them as well as, as a trust, um, that, that the club is not well-liked 
uh, and its PR approach doesn't particularly work with, with a lot of people in journalism. And I think people expect, if you're the chief executive of a high-profile organisation, they expect you to be fairly communicative. Uh, and I don't think as a person is particularly like that Kat's already said that that he's not somebody that's comfortable with with being the center of attention and being in the in you know sort of addressing big meetings or or being very public about things as well but if you're in that role then I think people expect a little bit more personally I think he would gain a lot and it's something I've said to Donna by coming out from behind the wall that's been put up around him uh, so that people can make their own judgments because I was quite surprised I didn't particularly like the way he came across before I went uh, onto the board uh, I don't think he's ever going to be my biggest mate, let's put it that way, but I actually have been more impressed by him and seen a little bit more warmth and genuine passion for the club than I, than I imagined uh, was there. And I think the problem, you know, I suppose talking to somebody who works in the media, if you, if you put a wall around people uh, and you don't let them show what they like, then, pe- then, you know, into that vacuum moves people, other people's judgments and other people are able to define what you like as well. And I think that he could do himself and the club a lot of good by just coming out from behind that wall a little bit uh, and people aren't always going to agree with him, but just explain, uh, you know, why you think certain things and why you're going to do it. And people might actually gain a little bit of respect for him. I think the suspicion is because people don't really know what he's like. Yeah, I, I, but I think, look, for me, as being an overseas supporter, I mean, I don't really know, know really, really, really what it is that he does. You know, for me, he's a bit of a figurehead and, and a lot of people just dislike him because they blame him for a lot of things that he may not, may be responsible for, but also indirectly not responsible for. But because he's so sheltered and you don't get to see him, you just see this cold man peering over his glasses, you <laughs> kind of just think, okay, so who are you? And, and you know, I tell you say what, something, Nikki, you cold man. <laughs> if you're very nice to us, we will share with you the incredibly detailed organogram that Tottenham Hotspur sent over. Uh-huh. It's basically a company tree as to who does what at Tottenham Hotspur oh, really? Football Club. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> can we can we can we have a verbal representation of that? I'm not sure who's uh, probably we can. It's got it's a Daniel Levy on the top line and then there's a big long line under it of everyone else. Yeah. And that's that about what but also, I think you know that is part of the problem that the football club chairman has as well. Is just that, and you referred to it earlier, Deb, about you know the chopping and changing of managers. Is that if things go wrong, the chairman are fairly quick to sack the manager. But who is it that appoints the managers in the first place? So what people see eventually is like, well, hold on a minute. Uh, you know, we've had lots of people that you've appointed that you've been sacked again because it hasn't worked out. When is it that you're responsible for stuff? And I think it's part of the problem with football generally. Football, like a lot of other areas of life, people are, are very quick to claim credit for the success. But if something went wrong, it was some other gift's fault, wasn't it, as well? Uh, and we, we kind of all probably have done a little bit of that in our time as well. It's sort of human nature. But, you know, when it's on the level of who runs a football club, then I think that that is what fuels the suspicion a bit as well. And again, I think the people that have been more successful are the people that have, have seemed a bit more human and come out and made an explanation for the decision and maybe decided that, you know, sometimes you've got to take a bit of criticism. I mean, we say to the club, you know, you know, we, we get hugely criticised for, for some of the things that we do as well. But if we believe it's the right thing, then we'll go up and we'll argue. We'll argue for them as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I hope that people respect us for that, even if they don't agree uh, with what goes on. That certainly our experience is that they do. You know, that you can agree to differ sometimes and still stay on friendly terms. Absolutely. You won't always, sorry, Jeff, you, you won't always please everybody. Uh, you know, it's, it's always going to be the, the case. But as long as you, you sort of, are behind the majority of the voice, which is what you what you're trying to achieve. That's yeah. all you can ask for. It's, yeah, it's, well, interest, 
it's interesting that um, you know he comes across as an aloof character. We've had had lots of managers that, that have been fired. Um, I can think of a, an owner in West London that is also quite aloof um, and mm-hmm. has also fired lots of managers over a how many years has he been there? Twelve year periods. Um, yet he doesn't seem to get the same criticism. But I suppose the difference is that unfortunately Chelsea <laughs> yeah, are successful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but even with the trophies, and people might disagree with me on this, I would rather have our chairman and our manager than their chairman and their manager. No, absolutely. absolutely. And and Javid should have never brought up the C word. Never. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> We've got. Um, We've got guys. We've got, about four, we've got four four questions. Um, I don't okay, know how okay. pressed you are for time. Them. Okay. Uh, okay. All right. Um, Aaron Wolf. He's an international uh, supporter. Um, he lives in, I think it's New York, and he's written for us on our uh, website a few times, a few articles, and they're actually quite entertaining. Anyway, he asks, as an international supporter, other than being a member of the THST and tuning in what's the best way to be a supporter and not just the fan? Okay, so right at the top here, let's just say that we're really not into judging how people support. It's not our place to say, you know, this will make you a better supporter. There isn't anyone can support however they feel best. Uh, But to address my own personal opinion, to address his question, actively participate in any surveys or polls that we run or that are being run. Share your opinions with us via email or on social media participate in forums and message boards they're always a you know a, a good outlet for, for getting more involved and getting more of a you know an opinion and a debate going uh, blog write blogs yourself and read blogs uh, listen to and interact with podcasts and be an ambassador in your local area so join the supporters club or even set one up if he's in new york they've already got a very good one there so i'm sure he's probably yeah. already a member but otherwise get on down there Great, great. All right. Um, Greg Taylor, he lives in Brazil and uh, he is British, but he lives, he's relocated to Brazil and he's also written for us a few times. He mm-hmm. says, um, the club has toured Asia in the past and the USA more recently to expand the global fan base. Having had the World Cup in 2014, do you think that the time might be right to steal a march on the rest of Europe and organize a tour of South America, principally Brazil? Stadiums are in place, and there's a potentially enormous untapped market over here. Um, it's, a, it's an easy answer to that, which is that that, that whole area is outside the, our remit, uh, and that, that's not a cop-out answer. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur is a successful business. They've got a marketing department. They've got people who are paid to do that, uh, and uh, I'm sure they're looking at that, and I'm sure that they can get on uh, and, uh, and, and, and look at that perfectly well themselves. We're, we're not there to boost their profits or increase their merchandise figures uh, you know, directly as an organisation. And we also tend not to get involved in, in playing matters or on field matters. Obviously, we'll, we'll talk and get them to communicate about transfer policy or whatever, but we're not there to say, you know, you should be playing this guy here, or what about this signing or whatever. Um, so there are, there are some of the things that, uh, that, that, that we don't get involved in. I think as far as we go on it is, is that if somebody was genuinely interested and wanted to know who the person to speak to at Spurs was, uh, then we would be able to put them in with somebody. But 
you know, it's not it's not our job to to to, yeah. to make the money and you know to sort of boost the commercial side of the organisation. That said, we would argue that by giving the fans a voice and kind of by boosting the you know the the, the voice and the support that the fans give to the club, that that indirect or that directly helps them in in their efforts to market the club. But I think they're perfectly capable of marketing the club themselves as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So penultimate question, um, Rebecca Braddock and also. Eddie Mullery ask um, is there any likelihood that Wi-Fi would be available in the, in, in the East Stadium and also what about um, a decent mobile service you know if you need to make phone calls and whatnot and I know there's a okay. school of thought which says that you shouldn't be posting stuff on social media when you're in the stadium and you should be watching the game but nonetheless yeah, yeah you're but moving... again you will have support how you want to support yeah, uh, it... so um, Wi-Fi in the new stadium almost certainly that will be sorted along with other mod cons like contactless card payments and all the rest of it so yes that will be all singing and all dancing in White Hart Lane um, no um, they're already at maximum capacity for you know all of their signalling and all of their you know electric and all that kind of jazz, all their technology, basically. There's just no point in investing in it when they're moving out in two years. So for White Hart Lane, we're going to have to make do with the crappy signal that we have. But in White Hart Lane Mark Two, then yes, if you want to, you know, post on Facebook for 90 minutes, you're going to be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, final question from Eddie Mallory. Uh, if the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust didn't exist exactly how would spurs fans be worse off okay um do you want me to start martin and we'll just two hands yeah 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 because we, we, we did jot a few notes down so uh we'll try and be brief yeah. yeah no we'll try and be brief there would be even less communication from the club with their fans than there is at present obviously it's not great as it currently stands but you'll be hearing even less um all off-field discussions of decisions would go unchallenged um, there'd be no independent voice or representation of a major stakeholder, as in fans, at all. Um, do you want to talk about the stuff specifically at Spurs, Mark? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think on, on tickets, how would you be worse off? I've already mentioned this. There'd be no cap on StubHub, so fans would be open to as much exploitation as they were uh, when the, 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 the platform was first uh, introduced in a completely unregulated way. Uh, if you're between 16 and 18, you'd be paying full price for match tickets unless we'd have uh, negotiated otherwise. Uh, if you're a season ticket holder, you wouldn't have had a price freeze for the last two seasons. Uh, you'd have had to renew your season ticket three weeks earlier this year. Um, you'd have paid more yeah, for the cup games at White Hart Lane. Yeah, we've already done it, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was a 20, 10 and £5 pricing initiative for cup games in the early rounds of the Europa League and the League Cup this year. That was our initiative. Uh, less fans would get, or fewer fans would get tickets for away games. You mentioned the Premier League rule change that we, that we worked on securing earlier on. Um, do you want to round the rest of them up, Kat? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, official supporters clubs wouldn't be entitled to a free coach to an away game every year. Uh, that was on the back of our lobbying for the uh, away fan fund, the £200,000 that each club has to ring fence to enhance the, uh, the away fan experience. Um, there's every chance, and I'm deadly serious about this, that our fans would still be being arrested for chanting the Y word. Um, the work that the Trust did almost standing alone at the end uh, working with the three fans who were facing criminal charges for that, uh, alongside leading human rights barristers and solicitors that was immense. And I'm very proud of that work. And it was a good seven months of my life. So, um, yeah, if we hadn't have battered so hard on that, 
extenders every chance that that would still be an issue now. Uh, numerous fans would still be facing indefinite banning orders without our invent- intervention or, or representation. As Martin mentioned earlier, we do step in where, when we feel that fans have been harshly treated, uh, when their tickets have been revoked uh, for you know uh, indiscretions that we don't consider to be that serious. So we'll, we'll, we'll go in and we'll do some negotiation on their part. Um, there'd be no public support for safe standing from Tottenham because no one would have asked that question. Uh, and there wouldn't be a big banner to Bill Nicholson on the Paxton Road or a surfing flag at the whole match. There you go. <laughs> I mean, very difficult to, difficult to argue with that. Um, yeah. before, I, before I bring proceedings to a close, um, do you have any questions for either myself or Nikki about the podcast or, or anything? Um, I think it's, it's possibly an ongoing question. I mean, what we're, what we're interested in, in, in doing a lot of work with the podcast is that it's obviously getting the views of, of, of different parts of the supporter base as well. And I mean, you know, with, with such a, a big support as us, there, there are quite a lot of uh, websites and fanzines and podcasts out there all appealing to slightly different constituencies. So the more, the more views we can get from you guys, uh, you know, the better it is in terms of us understanding whether we're being properly representative or whether there is stuff that we can do for you as well. So I guess... You know, is it a question or is it a, a, a general plea? Is, is, is kind of keep in touch and let us know what people are talking about on, on the website and on the podcast as well and uh, contact us when you think we can be any use. We certainly will do that. Um, one of the... There are lots of, obviously, Tottenham po- podcasts out, out there and I, and I mentioned the Fighting Cock and I'm a big fan of, of Flav and T and, and all the Fighting Cock boys and Echoes of Glory. Um, I was on their podcast last week as a, as a guest and I, and I, and I the, what the, the, podcast, the Spurs podcast that I do listen to, I do talk up. I, I never see them as competition. I, I enjoy listening to them. But where we're a bit different is um, we've got... Um, the podcast was formed um, after a Facebook group was created. Normally, I think a lot of Spurs podcasts that exist, the podcast comes first and then they create a Facebook page which sort of promotes the podcast and so forth. Whereas we had a group, a Facebook group um, of people um, spread across not just the UK but all over the world, you know, like Nikki, for instance, and, and we mentioned some of the listeners, Greg and Aaron, and, and we've got a global reach. So we've got a diverse range of opinions and certainly um, we will do what we can to um, get those opinions across to you. Um, that would be appreciated. Thank you. Fine, I should just add, um, just really once again, thank you. Well, thank you, Martin, for um, for writing the article. Um, and thank you both, you, both um, Kat and Martin, for taking the time to appear on the podcast. Um, really appreciate that um keep up the good work Thank and if, you. if if either of you want to appear on the podcast again you're more than welcome to uh, at oh. any point in time yeah and let, let us know when the link starts live and we'll, we'll get it tweeted out as well for you and you know sort of make sure that you get a bit more reach as well so but thanks thanks ever so much for giving us a chance to come on well with all things be, all things being equal it should be i should start editing it as soon as we're done so hopefully later this evening maybe about 10 o'clock Thank you. that's great lovely time, if not earlier um, well, and cheers, um, and cheers, Nikki, as well. Nice to, nice to virtually meet you. Yes, yes, thank you so much. After all our conversations over email, it's been wonderful chatting to you both. And, and thank you so Nikki. much. You've really given me a lot of insight, and I'm sure our listeners are going to um, actually take away a lot about what it is that you do. And, and I hope that a lot of them join, because I certainly am going to sign up as soon as I end this, this podcast. <laughs> Excellent. Thank, thank you. you.
and and on that cheery note thank you as ever nikki um joining me um the future's bright the future's lily white good night oh.